Yes, what's smoke, boy? That shit take me way back. Talk that shit like say that. Tell him that I'm coming. Welcome, everybody, to True Exact Show. I'm here with our special guest, lead singer of OAR, Mark Roberge. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for waiting patiently until we could link up. I'm glad we did. I'm getting a little older, so I understand how busy people could get. And I'm all for just being patient and waiting and playing the patience game. I can't believe I just called it that. I hate myself already. So we're going we're gonna to move on. Before we get going with uh, some questions, Mark, I... I'm going to give you a chance to bail here because I am actually a Pittsburgh Penguin fan and I think you're a Capitals fan, right? So the Penguins have spoiled so many Washington Capitals playoff right. run, uh, almost traditionally. So growing up was tough. I was a season ticket holder at the cap center. Me and my pops, we'd go, he'd surprise me Tuesday nights and we'd go and hit games, sit on the glass. So yes, I came up a huge caps fan and, Moved to New York 20 years ago and became a Rangers fan as well. So I balance those two things somehow. Most people probably don't agree that I'm allowed to do that, but I don't care. And uh, but I love hockey. So, yo, if I was at a Penguins game, I'd I'd be just as into it. It's just the greatest. It's the greatest sports product. Mm -hmm. There is. I agree with yeah. that. It's probably like my fourth favorite sport. But being there live, it's the best sport to be at. It truly right. is. So I'm glad your Capitals won in 2018, though. I was happy to see Ovechkin actually win. You know, I could only, as a fan, you can only ask for three in eight years, and then you got to pass the torch a bit. So it is what it is, right? Exactly. Ovechkin celebrated for everybody, not just Caps fans and hockey fans. And right. It was amazing, man. The whole world was watching, and, and we need more of that. I, I, hate, I don't like when, you know, look, people win awards and win things. The Stanley Cup is the hardest to achieve mm. of all. And then the way he celebrated was so joyous that it just made everyone in on it. Like they weren't taking themselves so seriously. And it was just really important. Like I wish that when people won Oscars or Grammys, they would just have fun with it and celebrate like anyone else would jump in a pond or something, you know, like no more speeches no more speeches. <laughs> that's interesting though because like i i kind of i tend to agree with that i haven't heard an artist actually speak out too much on that but yeah i agree it, it's almost like you want it congrats you know be be humble and just enjoy it go like you said drink out of the stanley cup you know mix a drink with your award yeah. is what it is that's uh, why hockey resonates with me man hockey is like you know everybody in it around it the families the ownership the people who work in the arenas everybody is just down to earth and yeah game to game day to day i, I love it it's very blue collar it's a blue collar sport right it's just like it's all in the moment my kid plays i i just wish i played like i tried to and it was just, I was the scene. It was awful. I'm <laughs> with you. I couldn't skate as a kid. I'm too top heavy. So I just would fall down constantly. So my friends would just give me the goalie pads and just take fucking slap shots at me. So I'd have to just sit there and go. Yeah. My, fuck, my brothers, man, like in the neighborhood, we play hockey every day is a big part. But like, yeah, lay me across the, the goal line and uh, they just say lay there and just 
<laughs> and I just remember getting hit with those things, man. Oh, terrible. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I'm actually happy we got in a hockey talk there. Let's get into the band, though, because uh, that's why we're here. So OAR, uh, a little background before I get in some other questions with, like, personal songs and stuff like that. How did you guys begin in the 90s? Like, what exactly happened? What brought you together? When we were in eighth grade, Pearl Jam was doing had just done the unplugged mm -hmm. i had spent every day after school watching this vhs tape chris our drum my drummer we live in the same neighborhood we would sit there and watch pearl jam dave abrazzesi on drums and jeff Ament and mike mccready and stone gossard and ed vetter and we thought that i want to do that i want to do that whatever that is and we were also at the same time watching these tapes of Genesis and uh, Phil Collins yeah. and Chester Thompson doing a, the drum battles. And so we were just really enjoying the live music thing. Our drummers, Chris, his dad was a drummer from Detroit and really worked, uh, ran pro audio at this local um, music center, Washington Music Center, Chuck Levins, which all like, if you ask any, anybody in who's played tour uh, who's played music on tour they know chuck levens you know it supplied the east coast with equipment and um we watched those tapes and chris had a drum set in his basement and i wanted to learn how to play guitar and make songs about my life and we started doing that i stumbled through guitar a little bit until richard came along and taught me how to play we got our first guitars together and taught me a couple chords and i would go to the basement and you know my first song was wrote cancer life my grandma passed away i didn't know how to deal with it i wrote about it we start putting these songs together we never really played covers Thank and you. we just started writing songs about our friends our life our school and We'd ride our bikes in, into the front yard, ghost ride them into the yard and go downstairs and make songs. Come the eighth grade talent show, we thought we wanted to play for the school. And that was our first show. And we played Pearl Jam and Eric Clapton. And um, it was a life changing moment. I wore my combat boots and my plaid shorts and did my best Ed Vedder. And then after that, we played the cafeteria at lunch in like ninth grade and it started to grow into like the local birthday party the pool house playing for our friends it was always based on our friends everything we finally started booking at this biker bar in Olney, maryland thursday nights thirsty thursdays you got your kid your buddies there you got your administrators from school the parents everyone's drinking having a great time there's really no rules and it was a special moment in time it was a moment in time where rock and roll was happening and Dazed and Confused was happening, the movie. Right. And we had this sort of community of kids wanting to make an identity based around music, a little bit of sports at school, the high school experience, man. And, and, and that's just what we did. We made records locally in a basement for a couple hundred bucks we sold them as tapes we eventually ordered our own cds from disc makers and by junior year of high school when we returned from a trip overseas to go to high school in israel we came back and by senior year we were selling cds and 
we were doing great. We had a record label. And so that's like the short story. It started with watching Ed Vedder on TV, doing Unplugged to doing it on our own and, and then preparing to go to college. And to make the long story even longer, I guess, we then, we knew we were selling CDs uh, for, you know, 10 bucks and ordering them a thousand at a time from disc makers for a thousand bucks and sending these boxes of 25 to our friends at different colleges around the country because where we came from people went away to school Mm -hmm. and i said to my friends look sell them if you can if you can't give them away get me the address local home address phone number and if they had email addresses at the time they did they would have like dot osu dot umd dot whatever And we collected, we had a sales rep program and we basically built a record label till it got so big and unmanageable that my brother, who was a business student, started to manage us. Eventually we grew into one of the biggest independent record labels in the country, I think. We were making gold records out of a local 930 club gig we did. And it just grew and grew and DIY until you could DIY no longer on every aspect of what we did until Atlantic Records came and we teamed up with them. And, I wanna, and, then, I wanna, and then 20 years happened. <laughs> I wanna ask about, um, cause that's fascinating. Cause I mean, like there's people who have like a mind ahead of the game. We've talked to a couple rappers who had what you had. They saw like the future happening at the present and it's something we kind of failed at, I feel, when we were handing out mixtapes. It never crossed my mind to ask for an email address. It never, it was almost like, hey, my my information's on here, good luck. But you're kind of floating into the abyss at that point. You're not really like doing anything. How did you think of like to build the market and get your own fan base by asking for that? Like that's, that's very smart in the in late 90s, I'm taking it here. Yeah, I think it it really just came from us, you know, sitting around saying that, you know, the information of who's buying our records. I mean, let me back up. In Maryland, I knew these one year older folks were going away to college. Mm -hmm. They were going to Vegas. They were going to California. They were going away, away, Arizona. Certain friends, my man, Evan Bellman out there in uh, Arizona and and Vegas personally would deliver these CDs to the fraternity houses, the sororities, dorms, I mean, and collecting these information. So when Napster hit, Mm -hmm. we had already known where our fan base was. So when we started to see our stuff pop up on Napster and people knowing the words all over, we chased down, we looked at our sales rep program, Hey, Arizona and Vegas and our, our buddy out there, there's a lot more people interested in us. Let's go there. And on weekends in college, we would go to these places and play and come back. And Napster would grow a little bit more. And we chase down. It's like what people do with Shazam now, where if you, in Shazam, you Shazam your song. The record labels will look at that and see where are they Shazamming the most of that song and then chase that radio and pay for ads there. I mean, it's, mm. we were doing this prior, unbeknownst to us, of course, but I think it all came from just being aware of, of the assets you have mm. 
as you're launching your musical endeavor, your career, whatever it is you want to do, being aware of the things you already have, not being so hungry about what you want or what you need or what you don't have. It's like we had a community of friends spreading out. Let's chase it down. Hmm. Let's get that information and farm it because we knew we could see it coming that um, fan base was going to be everything. Dave Matthews band was right down the road. So we're in Maryland. Virginia had popped off. Matthews was huge. Blues Traveler, hmm. all that stuff. And we said, wow, they know how to do it. They, they know how to build a fan base. Let's do that business plan. Mm. And so that was our live business was based on Dave Matthews Band. So you focused technically on like, you built your own ecosystem, like, and focused on the ecosystem. Like, uh, instead of chasing fans in Washington, you knew weren't there yet. You had fans in two states, so let's focus on the 300,000 in two states and feed that ecosystem. And if more grows, great, but you'll always have that 300,000. Exactly. It's about how, it's being willing to take the leap. So mm. when those two states became then, I noticed, wow, this one's popping off and this place is popping off. And I'm getting orders for CDs and people know the words to the songs I made up in a basement. And, and we decided to chase that down, stay in school and give up what social kind of life we wanted and, and create our own social life. And we, we had a great time doing it, but it was work. And that was it. The goal was to become the biggest band at Ohio State University. The reason why we even went to Ohio State in the first place was because in Maryland, we'd sold CDs, things were great. We were ready to go to college. We said, where's the biggest college, the most people, Texas. Mm -hmm. Okay, what college has the most bars? Ohio State. Mm. Where can we get in? Ohio State. <laughs> we get in so we get into Ohio State. One of our guys needs to like work up and transfer from community college. He does that. One guy's a year behind us. He finishes high school and comes on out. So all of these things were decisions made on purpose just to expose us to the opportunities. Mm. Like, I feel a lot of artists want it all mm -hmm. and rightfully so i mean it's your art you want to speak to a bunch of people but they want it all and and kind of want to glaze over the little victories it takes to get there the little island hop call it it's like yo i want to be on the top of that mountain sure but that's 25 years away so in the meantime i'm going to go island hopping and these are like short-term goals my short-term goal was ohio state and then it was regional while we built up that West Coast thing. And we went Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, every college, every front yard, every backyard. Yeah. Start renting out venues because we couldn't get booked in them. One of our guys wasn't even 21. And we rent them out and sell tickets ourselves. It was all, it was just trying, and I'm not pumping my tires. I'm just saying, like, you're asking me, did we see things happening? And I felt like we did. And we just wanted to be ready for them. Right. when the opportunities be ready no and that's really cool like i i just i mean seeing the process and you're right everyone wants it all but i mean you're not people need to realize like you could there's plenty of food out there for everyone to eat right if i if i were to put it that way and that's what i want to step into next you guys have been around for a long time and you see bands break up and stuff like what 
what do you think keeps the longevity alive? Like, I'm sure you guys all have great relationships still. It's like you've been there since you were at a junior year, so what, 17, 16? Like, what, what do you think is the main thing to keep the Yoko Ono out of the group or whatnot? You know, as you've discovered, I think a lot of people have, as they've seen this Get Back documentary, that the Yoko Ono effect was probably more created than real. Um, mm -hmm. The only things that can bring you down is yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been around some interesting characters over the last 25 years. We've teamed up with some interesting folks who it didn't work out. But all in all, we've worked with people who are career people. So I don't think anyone in our band, immediate circle around the band and business and musicians, not one person was like, I wanna be famous and I wanna be rich and I wanna be the biggest and the baddest manager. I wanna be the biggest and the baddest agent. I wanna be the big, everyone was in it for, let's grow this thing and keep it for a career mode. Mm. And when everyone's looking that far down the field, you're not distracted by these short term fights and arguments and little things that maybe get people under people's skin. But for us, we just we're brothers. Everyone who works for us, we trust. And long term vision, like our goal is to be musicians. We want to be professional musicians who tour. And the reason I saw that my oldest brother was in a band called Foxtrot Zulu a jam band from the East Coast in the 90s. And I saw them touring around. I had so much respect for what they went through in, in these tours, buses catching on fire, you know, sleeping in the shittiest places, showering in the shittiest places, like coming to my parents' house, staying in the basement, but so much joy and fun and like camaraderie. So I just always had that in my head. And so did all, all the band guys. We were so close. We, we saw what could be, you know, sitting around at night on a tour bus after a gig watching Popstar or watching Happy Gilmore. It's like, that's what we wanted. Right. And so to have that, you have to stick around for a long time and not get distracted, not fight, not fight over money, not fight over none of it. It's all meetings. Every meet we have every Thursday we have a we have a meeting. Um, we talk. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, I thought what was interesting, what you said, because it takes a lot of bands time to find or their voice, a lot of artists, a lot of rappers, you know, you'll start off rapping like Eminem or Jay-Z, and then you find your path or bands start off playing cover songs like the Beatles or, or Pearl Jam. But you said that you never played covers to begin with, which is interesting because you already technically had your sound then. You never had to like, no one ever would compare you to so-and-so because you started off with your own lyrics your own rhythm your own sound like how much more freeing was that that you kind of went straight into the game with your own sound and own voice i got so lucky first of all i mean we played covers we loved to we played pearl jam at the talent show mm -hmm. in eighth grade but like when it really started in high school i was obsessed with St and still am stephen king and i was reading the stand over and over and over. And I remember sitting in seventh grade, even eighth grade, just reading this thing. And by the time I went away to high school in Israel for junior year, uh, a non-religious thing, but just we just transferred and went to high school there, Chris and I, the drummer, um, 
I started to have a connection with this wandering person story. You know, you see it in most all great books, the Bible was a wandering person, of course, but like the, the stand and, you know, this repetitive. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to create my version of that. And I'm doing it from a lens of being in the Middle East, watching stuff happen, being a little bit away from the family and having a little bit of an objective viewpoint on, on my suburban DC life. And so when we came home, I had songs, I'd been playing guitar every night under the stars, like I had an opinion and a viewpoint all through this character, the Wanderer. So it was exciting for me because I was getting my short story Jones on, I was getting my lyric on. I didn't realize people were gonna give a shit about it. We were playing in the basement. We play in people's backyards in the neighborhood. But I'm telling you, people started singing the words back to me and it was so inspiring that we just never felt the need to play someone else's song. So, but when we do cover songs, mm -hmm. we do it 95% of the time, the way they did it. Out of respect for their version, we just try to do it the best version we can do of their shit. And that's just been our model. And I, I love cover songs. I'm a huge fan of music. I just really enjoyed telling my story, which started as this, imaginative thing of this guy wandering around and then I went and wandered around for 10 years and kept writing about it and then 20 years so my advice is always tell your truth tell your story like yes. people will believe you I it's, truly yeah I believe authenticity in music is the number one thing um just yeah, man, I grew up a huge hip-hop fan like coming from where we came from you're exposed to so much great music and and what I saw in for us, you know, the, the hip hop shows that we would go to early on and the music we were listening to, it was all about creating a, a play, a, an imaginative, a place in the listener's mind where they could like, they're in on it. Mm. They're hearing someone's experience, but they're in on it and they get this like removal from their life to listen. I thought that was really cool. So we wanted to kind of bring that to our world, which was told from the point of view of, uh, you know, a young person coming up through high school and traveling a little bit in the world and seeing a little bit of darkness and, and trying to work that out. Now, when did you realize, I always ask this to bands we have on or singers or artists, um, that your song really hit like it, the mainstream and wow, this is bigger than we anticipated. You got like love and memories. I personally think shattered is one of my favorite songs of all time. Not even kidding. It's like the perfect song. Everything's there, whether you're happy or sad, it's the one I turn up when my windows are up and just blast and sing out loud. And then at a red light, yeah, I press yeah. pause. You know what I mean? One of those. So oh, like, totally. Yeah, but it's a guilty pleasure, you know? Right. It's not, I'm not even guilty for liking it. I'll openly admit it. I'm an ace no, of I feel you, though. So, you know, I love it. Um, So when, it's kind of like when the Eagles Hotel California hit, like you probably don't expect it. And then you're like, oh my God, this is taking on a life of its own. So when do you see it i mean there was no instagram at the time there was no twitter oh or barely twitter so how did that happen dude that shit was crazy because we'd had a little bit of success i mean we played the garden we had done cool stuff to celebrate we'd done red rock like we were doing it but we'd never had a radio hit love and memories did okay hey girl did okay it was fine it was we were building up. We had a lay down song out with like an MTV college thing. It worked great. Spring break. It was like, okay. Then 
I remember walking into Atlantic Records, Craig Kalman, who is, you know, one of the top, top guys, uh, Julie Greenwald is another, and walking into that room and him going, you know, I really like this song Shattered that we hadn't put out yet, we, the album hadn't come out, but the song was almost done. He said, you know, I, I really want to have Rob Cavallo take a look at this and add a little flavor to it. He's a great producer. And we said, of course, that would be amazing. And what came back was a hit song. I mean, the littlest thing in the hi-hats, like there's certain things in the making of a song that just matter. And, and something changed in that reproduction of it. And it, radio started to play it and play it and play it. And when I'm watching this thing climb the charts, I'm like, oh, okay. And then it's on like mainstream radio. I'm like, I'm driving my family or my wife and uh, at the time young son up the East Coast in our car. And I'm hearing our song on the damn pop station. I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. And then it's, you know, the Blackberry commercial or the 90210 new show theme. And then it's just one thing. So as you're watching this happen, I just appreciated the hell. Out. I mean, I was like dialed in as far as how cool is this? But it wasn't one thing. It was just a series of, I mean, you just yeah. get phone calls like, hey, they want to use it in Japan on this thing. And you're like, what? Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Whatever. This shit is crazy. Like, I don't expect it. Everything was a blessing. Everything was a bonus. I'm in the studio now with the dude I made it with. And yeah. and that talk about it. And that brings you back to the, you know, 1996. You know, it's like everything like coming to that one moment. Like that's got to be almost like a life's work all in one song, you know, finally doing it, you know? Yeah. The New York times said when we played the garden, we sold it out. They, they came, they, their quote was, you know, if Atlantic records can't, you know, all this band needs is a hit song. And if they can't deliver this, da, 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 right. And, and it came, the success was great. The recession hit mm -hmm. the live music thing pulled back. Right. We kept going. We thinned out, we kept going, go, go, go. Like the last two years, go, go, go. Like this business is just about being put, output, output. Right. So we had, we got lucky so many times um, by being ready for anything. So like hit song happens, touring business goes sideways. You gotta do some shit. So do some others, do some Olympic stuff, do this, do it was just, being willing and able to hustle and grind. And I think that's a huge part of it. You really got to. That, that brings me to my next question, because you say always like stay ready so you don't have to get ready type thing. In 08, so you guys are around for 10, 12 years and then 08 happens, the recession. But there's a turn in music with the digital age coming. Right. So you're used to selling CDs out of your back seat and whatnot and i think another band that was able to survive this was train when they came out with soul sister and drive by from meet virginia 94 all the way to now they're still putting out hits even maroon five right. so how were you able to once again see through the the trees and and figure that out and maintain the status with the digital age coming you know we did that through a song called heaven mm-hmm so after Shattered and 
things took a weird turn personally my in my personal world things went sideways too and everyone was experiencing this like age of change 09 10 11. we put out this song heaven that production wise came from these guys called digipark who um young west coast guys and it was a new sound that made me a little uncomfortable but i loved it at first and i knew we have to try new things even at the detriment of letting down folks who want you for the same thing over and over and over and over and over but like shattered had already kind of changed that so we needed to try something new and the production of heaven led us into west coast radio and it really picked up and started to even out our east coast to west coast radio presence hmm. at a time when east coast came down the touring was kind of weird our west coast business started to boom and we chased that down so now we're out west i'm going every radio station we're on tour with the dirty heads we're doing da da and it's like just being aware of of what you have to do not like hoping i don't even hope for stuff yeah <laughs> i chase it down and if i don't get it Okay, sure. what I tried. So we followed that and that bought us some time while things in the digital world started to happen. By the time we got to Peace, which was a song um, in a more of a Nashville yeah. angle, it was another change for us. We had to grow our, our Venn diagram. <laughs> we had to grow. And we did that, you know, at the detriment, maybe the loss of a folk person here or there, but we had as musicians and artists grow. This time was not going to work for us. We were already in the second decade almost of our career. Mm. No one's begging for you. You got to work. Right. And we did that through change. Um, so by the time we get to now, we haven't like, you know, now everything is so quick. You know, you're big for a month and then you're done. Right. You know, we're not interested in that. What I'm interested in is artistry, growing that bubble. Yeah. And the way you do that is, is, is you got to try new things. David Bowie, I saw this quote the other day and I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of like, when it's a little bit uncomfortable, you know, you're, you're doing something right. Like you musically, you know, you know that you're not doing the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. And that's important, you know, well, to that all well, elongate your career. Yeah. And that also goes with you. Another question, the way you wrote, when you were younger as opposed to like you writing now on like the last album with uh like i go through and stuff or how do you right. how do you look at writing now as opposed to 20 years with you know family and kids and things like that is it more emotional i'm sure it's more like time consuming and just you know writing about stuff like that has to hit you a certain way it's a really good question when i started writing well my first song was about my life I'm 12. My grandma died. I don't know how to handle it. Cancer life been bringing me down. That's my first lyric. And so that's in the moment. Okay, great. Fast forward to 17, where you really don't know shit. You're, you're 17. So I'm writing about this fantastical world of this dude wandering around the world and meeting all these characters and this cool desert shit and all this is, you know, stuff. And then we start living a little bit, go away to college. I have a girlfriend who is like everything. I end up marrying this person and living a whole life with them. But I start to write about that. And then I start to write in real time 
about what we're going through. And that's where it changed was making songs about what we were doing. Like if I lost my uncle, I wrote about losing my uncle. If I was having a tough time at home, I wrote about it. And it really helped stay true. It helped our audience grow with us and not away from us because people don't, when they're 17 and 20, they're listening to 17 and 20 year olds make music. When they're 40 or 30, they don't want to hear another 30 year old writing like they're 17. Right. They want to hear about honesty, right? So staying true to that has been our model. I go through, you know, was pretty self-explanatory. Uh, and then I miss you all the time came out and that was about, you know, losing a friend suddenly and, and everyone's been through that. So okay. I've really found success in being honest. I'm not sitting here writing about like middle-aged guy with three kids, you know, da, 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 but it's my, my viewpoint of that, you know, through that lens. And I think a lot of people relate to that. And whenever we get a younger fan, uh, it's their interpretation of the lyric. And that's why I keep it amb ambiguous a little bit. I don't want to give away everything. Um, you know, I hear a song, it might mean something to me different than what Hotel California means to you. Right. And there's, um, it's not easy to make hits and have longevity. It's really not, especially like you said, you, you see artists come out now, it's one hit and you don't hear from them the next, the next seven years. So for you guys to do it, Think about weddings, the same 30 songs get played. So like you could say, oh, it's easy to make it. It's really not. And you have a couple of songs that have been played for almost 15, 20 years now that are in constant rotation on pop pop stations, which is mesmerizing and it's not easy to do. So that's congratulations. I know it might not be much, but congrats on that. Oh, that means everything, dude. I mean, fuck, I'm in here right now every day. This is our spot and you know in this building in this room right now there's like three other well-known artists doing what i'm doing trying to make songs and keep going because you really don't know when you're gonna have a hit song but you gotta try right it's gotta be in the game couple more things and then i'll let you go you've been more than generous with your time oh no i appreciate you man i've only done a couple podcasts that's why i talk so much Sorry. oh it's fine it's absolutely fine otherwise i do all the talking and people would turn this off immediately so so it's fine what artists have you worked with or been in the studio with that you were just in complete awe of like you never they did something differently and you're just almost how do you do that was there anyone in particular oh Oh man, I had, I'll name two recording experiences that really just, I just couldn't, I still can't believe I was watching this happen, but you're in a room, you're, your producer for the album is Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads. So you've spent months with this guy hearing Talking Heads stories, which is amazing because Talking Heads changed the game. And then, you know, we got Steve Ferrone on drums playing in the room, and he's the drummer from everything from Aretha Franklin to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers to you'll see him on tour with John Mayer. You'll see him everywhere. He's the number one on, guy. He's the number one. Like, there's Steve Jordan. There's, you know, there's a few folks, right? And then on keys, we got Bernie Worrell from P-Funk mm -hmm. and from Parliament. And he's playing keys and then on sax and this is a jam we're just doing you know and it's on sax you got lenny pickett from saturday night live band and 
that are bands in there and and you're looking around and i just stopped playing i'm not playing none of our guys are playing we're watching learning to see a professional professional old school hit that drum in the same location every single time same tone or any tone they want bernie worrell on keys you know you go up to him and say hey bernie can you try it like this he'll go motherfucker i wrote flashlight you know and you're like oh okay cool man no notes for you <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, that that for me was a huge learning experience jerry harrison did that for us just to kind of get us in the room we've had drummy zeb from the the whalers come and play drums in the basement with us so we could know when you're playing reggae music like i knew enough coming from dc to try to do it with respect because you know we're playing our version of it only because I can only play a couple chords and we'd want to make sure we're doing this thing right. So we bring over Junior Marvin from Bob Marley's band and he comes and plays guitar and tells me, what, what do these lyrics mean? And he's telling me, what, what does stared up mean? What, what do these lyrics, why are we saying this? And he'd walk me through it. So for me, it's always been about learning. Yeah. When I get around the old cats and I get to learn stuff, I get mesmerized. I mean, Bob, uh, Robert Redford, I, he's only sang on two songs in his life. You know, me and John Lampley wrote one of them and got to go to the studio and watch him and record him singing. And when you hear this dude's voice on a headphone, you're hearing like history of film and you just hear like <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You just hear it all happening. So for me, my experiences of joy in the studio, aside from working with the band, are always watching the old heads, like the dudes that just, and girls who just like teach us, you know? Cheryl Crow, holy shit, <laughs> like watching her sing. Forget about it, man. I, um, I want you to know that you probably have the, a great breakup song for the rest of your life in Shattered, and then you have a wedding song and all because of you. So to, to knock out that one-two punch isn't easy. How, how, how do you feel about your song being like one of the wedding songs for the rest of your life? Oh, man. And that, I owe that to my wife completely because we're dry. We spend our, our time, the most family time we, we would get as touring was really happening was like, in between tours, we would rent cars and go and drive back and forth to Maryland or up the East Coast. A lot of our time was spent in the car talking. Mm -hmm. And she, we were listening to an Ed Sheeran song. Um, I forget which one, but it's some amazing song, <laughs> some wedding song, amazing. And she says, you know, you really don't have a first dance song. Mm. Says, you need a first dance song. And I said, okay. I came in to the studio the next day and just made that song like that's you know, correct we just sat down the team here and just made it and with the intention it's about her because she came up with the idea and she's amazing she's my wife but it applies to everyone that's and awesome then, God, we got lucky with that one and that one's growing like yeah it, it came out with no fanfare it's not on the radio but we get more requests for that song than any other song it's crazy. The um, is there any artist that influenced you that you're a big fan of? No one would expect. Like I love Air Supply, and I get a lot of shit for that. But they're one of my favorite bands of all time. So is there any like obscure person that your fan base would be like, really, you're into that or that person? Yeah, I mean, for me, and I say this a lot, is like I'm still 
the few things that I listened to or came up with are the same things that I listen to now. So like they right. set the tone for me and I still, and it's all going like this crowded house, Pearl jam and the air that surrounded Pearl jam temple of the dog and all that. And then we're talking about tribe called quest. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about poor righteous teachers. We're talking about, um, everything from that era that came up, you know, in where we were, it was just part of our growing up. And then, you know, moving on a few years to, uh, I don't know that I changed even that much, but the records of the Bob Marley and the Whalers records, Genesis records, Peter Gabriel records. I mean, it's the same sounds of my youth that are keep replaying in my head and, and I have trouble finding new ones. Um, people might be surprised by, you know, I could go down a list of the hip hop records that we just wore out. Right. And, uh, but people, I don't know if they're surprised by that. Cause if you come from, I was born in 78 so 90s i'm full-on teenager right and hip-hop was the greatest fucking i know it's great now but it fucked that era it was so yeah yeah onyx i'm reading this book now yeah. called dilla i'm reading dilla time right now this book about dilla and it's like you just it's hard to compare with that era i don't know I just picture oar going crazy to slam by onyx in 1990. oh come on man what about grave diggers and like you know even like you know there was a whole era like wu-tang clan came up right. when we were in high school i went to a school called wooten high school we were so out of it i didn't know i was like i just i thought it was some local group i didn't know what wooten wu-tang and then you start to break it down and everyone's got a career and there's so many levels to it and then you're i'm growing older and appreciating that how hard it is to write yeah a, a song let alone you know fucking like 16 bars and then oh, another 16 it's like yeah what how the hell did you do that like right so, so for me it was lyric stuff man and i mean even getting to like the lyricist lounge records when they started to come out and i'm listening to the growth of my style of you know i would say like boom bap like lyric hip-hop like that to me shaped like how our drummer plays was watching <laughs> these bands, you know, the roots and the goats, like we're going to see them at 930 club coming up as our first concert. That's awesome. The roots. Do you want more album? Forget about it. That shaped everything for us. You know, people don't, I don't even know if people know that album exists as much as they should. Yeah. Well, Mark, honestly, this was awesome. Well, what do you guys got coming up? I know you'll be in Jersey in August, right? You got to show a PNC. So I think me and my wife are going to go to that one. I'll make we'll sure. reach out. We'll take care of you. We'll say hi to the boys and stuff. And, um, you know, we're doing that tour starting in July with Dispatch, who's another band similar to us who came up DIY, right? Our album comes out in June. And then we partnered with C3, which is a big festival company. And we're uh, putting on a festival in Ocean City, Maryland, September 30th through October 2nd which is going to be a major festival, major artist, three days, super fun. And then we will plan our next summer tour. All right. Awesome, man. Keep it up. Big fan. This is really cool for you to come on. I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate you, dude. Thanks for uh, waiting for me and uh, we'll do it again soon. No problem.